Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. But I'm going to tell you, you are in for a treat. Uh, We've got uh, Charletta Evans, who is uh, really a national treasure, a hero of mine, an incredible friend of uh, Raw Tools. Uh, These faith forums we have been doing periodically, we try to hit them up every month or two, and we've talked about all kinds of different things. The whole goal of these faith forums is to to connect our faith to the real issues in our world. And we've talked about immigration, abortion, policing, uh, the environment. We've we've run through many of them. And we've, we've also talked about gun violence and the death penalty. Um, and Ms. Charletta Evans, who you're going to hear from, uh, it lives at the intersection of many of those things. But this is special tonight because instead of just talking about a big issue of injustice, we're framing it around restorative justice, right? To think about not just the stuff that's wrong, but what are some better models that can heal the wounds of violence in the world? And I can't imagine anybody to have that conversation with uh, better than, than Mike Martin and Charlotte Evans. Uh, so as folks trickle, trickle in, let me just tell you a couple of things. First of all, uh, many of you have been joining us for our book clubs and we've been this month, by the way, this month is gun violence prevention month is why I'm wearing my orange. We've been wearing orange this month that we might. And uh, you can get these blessed other peacemakers for there, the children of God shirt. You can get them on red letter Christians or at raw tools. Um, you, you can wear them beyond June as well, but uh, that message is out there and we've been doing our book club. We've done a whole bunch of different things around gun violence this month. And it's also the anniversary of the Emanuel AME shooting in Charleston. Um, And so this is our book for the month of June for such a time as this by uh, Reverend Sharon Richter. She'll be with me on Sunday. It's going to be a powerful conversation. And this is a, you know, pretty, it's a powerful read, but it's not too long. So it's not too late to get her book and read over it. And uh, even if you don't have the book, join us on Sunday night. It's going to be incredible. And then we're doing morning prayer on the first day of every month. Uh, So July 1st. Uh, we're going to we're going to have morning prayer. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove and I will be hosting, but we'll have a special guest, Robbie Jones, who is a scholar and an expert on the trend of Christian nationalism. So my y'all, we're watching these January 6th things happening. And um, we, this is an incredible conversation we're going to have. We're going to pray together. Lord knows we need to pray together for our country on um, July 1st, but it's also very near to July 4th. So there's no coincidence there that we're talking about Christian nationalism uh, and what's, uh, you know, the kind of crisis of that of Christian nationalism in our country. So now tonight's uh, uh, conversation is 
but really I'm, we don't need too many chefs in the kitchen. So I'm going to, I'm going to dip out soon, but I want to first bring in Mike Martin, who y'all, most of y'all know Mike, a lot of you know, Charlotte uh, Evans well, but Mike and I wrote beating guns together. He's the founder of raw tools. And, uh, um, and you've been really busy this month, Mike. So I thought first, before we dive into everything, tell folks what you've been up to with the, the Broncos and all the, you know, the gun buybacks and chopping guns all month. Uh, Tell us about it, man. Yeah, we've we partnered with Charlotte too, uh, with the cities of uh, Denver, Colorado, and Aurora, Colorado, part of the two big cities in the Denver metro area, for eight buybacks this year, starting in March, going through October. We've also been doing sister events where we turn some of those guns into garden tools and hear from Charletta and other people within her network, the Colorado Crime Survivors Network, which she co-founded or, or founded uh, here in Colorado. So we've been busy cutting up firearms. Our national network has also been busy cutting up firearms since the shootings in Buffalo, Uvalde, Tulsa, and et cetera. They just keep happening. So we have, we've kind of had an explosion, not just of in gun donations, but also in people wanting to help cut up those firearms. Um, and we, we always try and hose connect those events of cutting up the firearms to the people like Charlotta, who's been directly impacted by gun violence. Yeah. And you chopped so many up. You, uh, you went, you had to go get checked on by the doctor cause you're dehydrated, <laughs> huh? <laughs> Uh, I, just, I just threw you under the bus right there. <laughs> that, I need to practice self-care a little better, I think. <laughs> so the, the, I'll let you introduce Charletta because she's been a, 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 I mean, a core part of this whole movement with raw tools and also uh, gun violence. But bigger than that, Charletta, you're, you're, you're um, an amazing example of what how we can use our wounds to kind of heal the wounds of the world so i'm so glad that you could do this with us i'm gonna dip out let mike kind of officially welcome you and i'm excited for the conversation make sure y'all uh, put comments or questions in the chat. We're watching the live streams on Facebook and YouTube and other places. So if you have a question or a thought, uh, make sure you share it there. So Mike, Charlotte, I'll let you take it from here. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, uh, Red Letter Christians and Katie behind the scenes too, doing some work here. So um, I want to kind of frame all of this. If we go back about uh, just over nine years, 10 years ago, um, Charlotta just celebrated 10 years um, of her dialogue, uh, her high-risk victim offender, or what was now called high-impact dialogue. And uh, right before that, I was a youth pastor, and our church was hosting a restorative justice conference for uh, kind of the Colorado area, the Colorado Springs area, where I'm located. And it was right after uh, Charlotta had uh, this amazing dialogue. It was the first high impact dialogue in the state of Colorado and high impact means it's not, it's, it's a level above a significant harm has been done. Usually violence, often gun violence um, that's involved here. And uh, in this case, uh, I'm going to let her tell her story specifically, um, but it was, she experienced a loss to gun violence. And so it was a major impact, something that a lot of people were working on to allow restorative justice to take place within our current legal system um, and and try and create another another path for people to find healing who've experienced uh, significant trauma, significant loss, and um, really oftentimes out of nowhere, something that no one really planned for. So, um, Charlotta, thank you so much for, for being here. Um, hearing your story has 
uh, added that piece that raw tools needed to we're turning guns into garden tools. That's wonderful. But also this, uh, this path of restorative justice uh, really helps kind of bring that whole idea of turning swords into plowshares on the hard work. I tell people often that doing the work of turning guns into garden tools is easy when you compare it to the work that you've done uh, with restoring not just your life, but so many other people in your family who are impacted by uh, the loss of Quezon. So if you could, Charlotte, uh, let's, uh, you always love to be introduced as uh, Quezon's mom. You're also Calvin's mom and soon we're here uh, Raymond's as well. So um, tell us a little bit about um, yourself, uh, some of the things you've, this is not just Colorado Crime Survivors Network, but tell us about some of the other work you're currently doing in, here in Colorado. Yes, thank you, Mike. Um, thank you for uh, informing me of, of uh, the work that Shane is doing. I'm always welcome to, uh, excited to be in you all's midst. I think we, we set out there and we did the documentary and we uh, <laughs> did the book. And uh, and so I was able to share my story in the documentary as well as in the book. And so that's my first introduction to Shane. And, uh, and then uh, just really um, uh, coming in on it, like you said, maybe um, we're looking at maybe like seven years ago, I believe, uh, anywhere between five to seven years ago is when I met Shane. Um, and when I did my first, uh, uh, it was at the Restorative Justice Summit there in Colorado Springs, which you're speaking of, that was my, probably my first um, big event um, ever speaking at, sharing my story and uh, on my journey, Quezon's story. The work um, that I've been uh, pretty much uh, catapulted in um, doing legislation and being instrumental with um, changing the laws nationally uh, with a um, at the U.S. Supreme Court level, working with the um, campaign for fair sentencing of youth in uh, D.C., uh, doing a lot of that legislative work, uh, lobbying um, at the on the Hill uh, when it came to Miller and Graham uh, changing the laws for the juvenile lifers, uh, to where we were able to be instrumental with that. Um, also with Louisiana, uh, we were able to ch change the laws there. So we pretty much being instrumental nationally to affect the lives of juveniles that have been sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, being able to change that and then impact it locally um, here in the state of Colorado to where um, we have now anywhere from 12 to 15 juvenile lifers that have been resentenced uh, based on that at national uh, work. Um, also being, uh, doing the work with the Colorado Crime Survivors, doing the work of Colorado Crime Survivors Network, we have uh, our two flagship programs, which is 5280 Survivors, Moms and Dads that have lost children to violence. Uh, heavy, we're heavily involved with legislation. Uh, we were able to work right along with um, ACLU, um, Equal Justice USA and abolish the death penalty here in the state of Colorado. That was in 2020, uh, March of 2020. It was signed uh, out of law <laughs> by the governor to where we were able to abolish that. Uh, we had over 70 signatures of victim families that did not 
agree with the uh, death penalty. So we we did that work, boots on the ground, and uh, made it happen to where the right voices was in the room to to change that that trajectory of uh, the death penalty here in the state. So it was it was a great feat, and uh, we so proud about it. And probably seven days after that, three men was removed off of death row and and shifted to a life in prison without the possibility of parole. So we had three young men that, that sit on death row for over, uh, over, oh my goodness, more than two decades that was sitting on death row. And so that was, that was monumentous. Mm-hmm. So um, also um, we have the, uh, the PYGD, which is our put your gun down. Uh, that's with our kids that we're dealing directly with complex traumatic grief, um, as well as um, uh, just the pretty much the traumas that our youth have faced. So that's some of the work um, constantly. The Colorado Crime Survivors Network is constantly networking, um, as we have done with Raw Tools and ACLU of Colorado, and just you know doing doing the work. Um, legislative work is what's really needed, and so. That's what we do. And there's just countless of bills we've been a part of being instrumental with the change here uh, that that affects the grassroots organizations that we can actually get some work done. Yeah, and you also have, uh, I think, connected with the Put Your Gun Down campaign, the HIP program, handgun intervention program with systems that involves youth and young adults as well. So you've got you've got uh, your hands in so many different levels of uh, gun violence prevention, but also postvention, really important work so we can break those cycles of violence. Um, so to to start kind of digging into restorative justice, um, how did you learn about it? Because you were the first first person to do this high impact dialogue. Can you talk a little bit about how it was brought to your attention? Because it's it's even still it's often a hard service to find out about as someone who who is uh, defined as a victim in the in the current legal system. Yes, um, I was introduced to restorative justice um, when um, now. So let me let me um, share my journey um, that led that led us to this particular event. So it's been 26 years. Um, I lost my three year old son to a drive by shooting by the hand of teenagers. It's been 26 years ago. Um, actually, this coming December will be 27 years. Um, my son, Kason Xavier Evans, uh, three years old, um, life was taken. And being a Christian and being a strong believer, um, I was impacted by the Holy Spirit to really bring on a miracle of grace, of forgiveness. And it was an instantaneous um, work in my spirit and in my heart. And with that taking place, um, it put me in a position to be able to focus on my healing and healing well, as well as my surviving son. I will get into some of the detail um, about that um, once I talk about that restorative justice piece. 
So because I had come into a place of forgiveness, uh, I would say instantaneously, um, I was approached by several people talking about restorative justice. Well, when I first heard about it, um, I really wasn't interested because I was yet going through my healing process. Um, years later, I just began to remember about this. I had done all of my self-care. Uh, I had to confront it, all of the, uh, the hard things about my healing, uh, the six stages of grief and walking through those processes. And I felt like there was something missing. So I went after the person that experienced, that told me about restorative justice. And that was in 2009. So I began to talk to them about what do, can I do? It hadn't been unheard of here in Colorado concerning the high risk uh, dialogue. And like you said, it's now considered high impact. But at the time in 2009, it was high risk victim and offender dialogue. And uh, it hadn't been heard of. And so it kind of coined that name because of the fact that there was homicide involved. And that's where it became the high risk and fully um, something that we had to use every safety measure to make it possible here in the state. So there was a work that went forward due to the request that I wanted to see the person that caused me harm, that I wanted to go face to face with that person. And um, so we began to do the work. So coming with connecting with um, now Senator Pete and Lynn Lee, which are the gurus here in Colorado, um, someone that you can call on, someone that knows restorative justice ins and outs. Uh, but the fact that we were doing it high risk, it was new to all of us. It was new to me as a victim family, to those that have experienced uh, restorative justice dialogue for misdemeanors, school, uh, workplace. It was all new to confront this high risk. And so that was my exposure to learning and it took us three years to do the work to um, pretty much convince the Department of Corrections that this was something that was needed. So that's when I began to do legislative work. Um, at the time, Pete Lee was practicing law and he became a state, re state representative at the time. Um, once he became a state representative, he drafted a bill um, I testified on the bill at the House, at the Senate. We were able to get that bill through. Restorative justice became law in 2012. And that's what opened the door for a pilot program. When the pilot program came about, excuse me, it was 2011 when the bill actually came, um, was signed into law. 2012, we were actually able to say, let's set a date. I was considered the person that they wanted to utilized for the first high-risk um, victim and offender dialogue. And the young man that had caused me harm was considered a model prisoner that he was able to, he qualified for that dialogue, which he was accountable, remorseful, and had a willingness to repair the harm. So we went over a six months prep which is called a pre-conferencing. So we prepared and went over with a fine tooth comb 
for safety purposes, hence high risk. So that is um, how I pretty much found out about it. We did the work um, as a victim family. I began to use my voice and realize the power that I possess to produce change. And that's when uh, restorative justice became law here in the state. I wonder if we can back up and you can talk about what happened to your son, Kason, and then we can uh, kind of get back into a little bit more of the prep process and, and what it was like entering that room for the first time. So walk us through what, what happened in, in December there in the late 90s. Yes. Um, thank you, Mike. Um, so December 21st, 1995, um, we were preparing for Christmas. Um, here we are four days before Christmas and three days before my surviving son's birthday. Um, we were heading down to the Park Hill area. I grew up in Aurora, lived in Aurora. Uh, became When I was an adult, I still remained in Aurora, Colorado. Uh, we were called down to a residence down in Park Hill, the Denver area of Colorado, because there was a report of a drive-by shooting the night before. And my relatives called me to come to uh, their safety, to, their, to rescue them from this violence that had, um, had pretty much stemmed from a lot of gang activity here in Colorado that's, that trickled in from California, um, where there were a lot of gang activity and it was coined the summer of violence. And that was in 1990, uh, 92. This was the tail end of it, uh, 1995. They had already put in laws that they were going to lock up any child that was involved with gangs that had committed a homicide. And so when we went down to Park Hill area, uh, we were caught in the midst of a shooting, another drive-by, the same ones that were there the night before returned. We were caught in the middle of that drive-by. 21 bullets were fired, seven to the duplex that we sat in front of, and 14 to the car that my boys were in and other relatives. Um, I had went down to pick up a great niece, which was three years old, same age as my Kason. Um, the car was riddled with bullets. Kason, Xavier Evans, uh, nicknamed Biscuit, his life was taken that night um, by one of those bullets that entered into that vehicle. I was currently in the home picking up my niece when the shots began to ring out. Once we left the home, jumping in the car two blocks later is when we realized Kason had been injured, uh, not knowing the severity of the injury. And um, the paramedics came to where we were and uh, they hoisted, uh, you know, Kason off uh, to care for. Uh, right before the paramedics came, Kason took his last breath in my arms. Uh, when I looked down on my clothing, I was covered. Um, he had bled out all over me. Um, I had no idea that that was taking place at the time. They took his little body on and they were looking to survive, uh, revive him. Um, at that time, um, their paramedics took him and then my surviving son was there, um, not knowing what traumas he experienced being right next to his brother when he was shot. 
Um, he was six years old, getting ready to turn seven Christmas Eve. And um, pretty much um, that night was a, um, you know, it was it was one of those things to where it was just just in disbelief that this had all just happened. And uh, we were taken to the police department. My family came. They took my surviving son with them. Um, the police department took us down and questioned us. And they knew something that we did not. And that was they, they were not able to revive Quezon. And um, they gave me the report that Quezon did not make it. So um, once we were sitting there, um, I really experienced a divine uh, strength that came over me, uh, not really knowing that's what it was, but I could hear my niece crying out at the police station that Quezon's gone. And uh, I really felt a strength come over me that I had to get to her. Once we left the police station and went to the hospital, uh, all the, the, the walls were covered with friends and family. And um, they were looking at me and they said that my face was just a glow. And they were wondering, did I even know that Quezon was gone because of my countenance and my appearance? And um, that's, they found out that I did know that Quezon was gone. And leaving the hospital, I experienced a supernatural experience. I went into the restroom to find myself and to gather my thoughts. I was in agony. Uh, I could not believe that this had just taken place. And so the only place that I could go was to the restroom to get away from everyone. When I went into the restroom, um, I sat there and I just began to ask God, has this really just happened? And I could hear my mother praying in the other room to dispatch angels. You know, we're, we're Pentecostal. We're, <laughs> we believe in the work of angels. And so I could hear my mother saying, dispatch your angels, find out who killed my baby. And I remember saying in response to that, it doesn't matter to me who killed him. Is he really gone? And I was just, I could feel myself moaning in agony on the inside of me. All of a sudden, I hear a voice and, and I felt a presence. And this voice was a suggestion and a question at the same time. And the voice spoke and said, will you forgive? As if to say, have you considered forgiving? And I was like, God, is that you talking? Of course I'll forgive. What what I, I, I was really, you know, not knowing what this was all about, or I just I heard the voice on the inside of me and I felt a presence. And it was, will you forgive? Have you considered forgiving? Um, I sit there, I said yes. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what, what was that all about? How these people must be horrible people that took my son's life. If God is asking me to forgive when we know nothing about who had done this crime, who had done the shooting, we knew nothing. 
And um, I said, yes, I'll forgive. And at that moment, I remember leaving the restroom and I was able to rest that night. And I remember seeing a vision of Kason in that home that I was at where he took the last breath and he was at, on, at the ceiling in the corner and I saw a vision. It wasn't a uh, dream. It was actual vision. And Kason was saying to me, mommy, here I am. I'm up here, mommy, here I am. So that was a piece that came over me that night where I could rest. He was letting me know he's still yet alive, even though his physical body had, was absent. Um, the next morning, the news came, uh, the, the news reporter came and asked me, did we know anything about who had committed this crime? I said, we have not heard from anyone. The district attorneys has not called us. No one knows who done this. Um, it was a pretty much a community um, uproar and search about who had done this crime. No one had heard anything as of yet. I told him, but one thing I do know is that I have forgiven. And he said, what do you mean you forgive? I thought you said you hadn't heard from anyone. I said, exactly. Only thing I know is that I have a peace and I have forgiven. And it went on the front page of the news at that time. Mother of slain toddler forgives and no one has been apprehended. From that point on was when my healing began when I said yes to that offer of forgiveness, have you considered forgiving? <laughs> Will you forgive? And because I had already been conditioned in my faith, because I had three years of relationship building with the father, when I gave birth to Kason is when I gave my life to Christ. And it had been three years. I was doing missionary work. We were doing uh, drug and alcohol support groups. And I had pretty much connected my relationship. So when that question came to me, I was prepared to say yes. So these things does not happen overnight to say yes to forgiveness. But you hear the voice of the father and I think you need to respond properly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who hearing your story and then dove into restorative justice and getting training, one of the things they talk about is you never require forgiveness as part of restorative justice. It's just not appropriate. Yes. And yet yes. it's this organic thing that happens as a part of the process, whether, whether it's almost instant, like yourself, your experience or other people, like uh, if you read Reverend Risher's book, uh, for instance, talks about how she knows that's the path she's on, but we all have our different kind of timetable to that, right? Like we all, we all have our, 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 our path that needs to respect our grief, and we, we get there, and we move there. But there's something unique about re the restorative justice process that, that puts two people together that have been connected by this, this trauma um, and asks them to work together to help heal or or, um, you know, make amends for that. And forgiveness often becomes a part of that, whether it's two Christians or not, or two people of faith or not, that it's, it's almost like this thing that's not in the ingredients, but still gets baked in. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So I think, yeah. And, and this, this whole kind of legal prep process, um, you mentioned it there um, a little bit about how 
these people must have been horrible who did this to my son. Um, can you get, there's kind of this also parallel track of the current legal system or traditional legal system and restorative justice alongside that. Um, can you speak a little bit about how, how the, uh, the person or the people who did this were painted uh, by the justice system to you? And then your experience in the courtroom with Raymond, especially. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, the, you know, we have a system that, um, which I had, I, I knew nothing of this. Uh, I learned this throughout my process of uh, going through the court proceedings. And, um, you know, the district attorneys, they had already coined all of these gang members, all of these juveniles as the worst of the worst. And so when we found out three days later that these were kids that had access to guns, two 15-year-olds and a 16-year-old that had broken a home, stole a car, stole guns, and was out shooting. This was unheard of in my life. I, I, I was just taken back to know that children had access to guns. And I just, it, it, was, it was horrible and awful. Um, it, it, it almost, it almost surprised me just as much as the fact that Kason was gone, the fact that there was guns in the hands of kids. Um, then the fact that once they were apprehended, the district attorneys had let me know they want, they want to use the main shooter. So we have three kids. We, they want to use the main shooter in his example, send him away for life. Also, the co-defendant in the shooting and also the driver um, who he was. He didn't have access to guns. He was not shooting, but he was the driver. So painting that picture that he was a monster, that he was the worst, that he was this notorious gang member that was leader of the pack of all these other kids, the main shooter they're speaking of, and that they wanna use him as an example so they can deter this gang activity. And so um, pretty much when my thoughts and the things that I was thinking about these kids were like, they were literally monsters, they were, you know, they were someone that needed to be put away before they caused harm to anyone else. And so when when I um, there was things that transpired between the time of apprehending the kids, um, they got the they got the kids um, in custody and then they began to filter out who actually killed Kason. And, you know, they had done all this work. And then when they called me in, they had already come to that conclusion of what had happened. And um, now we have a charges against the kids, homicide, uh, child abuse, all these different charges. Um, the main shooter received about nine charges um, to his case. Um, and now we have three trials we're ready, we're ready to face. In the process of this, we were called upon. Now, this is Christmas. This is December 21st, 1995. So now we have case uh, Calvin's birthday, my surviving son, Calvin. His birthday is the 24th, <laughs> a day before Christmas. So we had birthday we had to do. 
Then we had Christmas we had to do. Then we had to bury Kason on the 28th of December. So we have all of this work that we're getting done and thank God for the supernatural strength that he imparted upon me and in me to be able to navigate through these things. I could not tell you to this day how it happened, <laughs> but it actually took place that I was able to perform these things. Right after that, now we're going into 1996. The beginning of 1996, there was a pretrial hearing. Keep in mind the same night that Kason was killed is when I received that visitation and that voice. It happened near midnight that same night that Kason was killed, which was December 21st, 1995. When I went to the pretrial hearing, I walked into the courtroom and I looked across the courtroom and there stood the main shooter, the boy that killed Kason. And when I looked at him, I could not believe my eyes that he was a baby. <laughs> he sat there shackled in an orange suit and when he turned around to me, it was his chest opened up. I experienced another vision. And in this vision, it was as if his chest opened up and I could see inside of him. And I was able to witness his heart that was full of compassion and that it was not this wicked, cruel, harsh person, the picture that they painted. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I didn't know if it was compassion coming from me or coming from him. But when I looked at him, all I could do is say, wow, he's not who they said he was. That was my thoughts. Retrospect, when that happened, we were knitted together spiritually um, at that particular point, and it was my confirmation of forgiveness. So I was looking at this young man through the eyes of Christ, who he really was from the eyes of God and not man, and who his heart was already held by God, and this boy was not who they say he was. And as I said, retrospect, we were knitted together spiritually when I witnessed who he really was. Walking away from that, you know, when you're, when you have these experiences and they're supernatural and they're divine, you don't really understand them at the time. And so walking through that process of knowing that one thing that I knew that I had a glory cloud upon me and that I was equipped to go through these trials and to deal with every matter that was coming forward as well as healing well. So I was equipped to heal well um, as well as go through the process of the trials, be present for my surviving son and knowing that I had to embrace all of the stages of grief in spite of the pain that I was going through. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely um, something that not having to deal with hostility 
resentment, hate, bitterness, that forgiveness had put me in a position to where I didn't have those thoughts within my heart or my mind. Yeah. And I know we're trying to squeeze like 25 years of it, of this whole, cause this really is a 25 year experience for you. It's not just the night it happened or the night you've, you had this dialogue, but there's a whole lot of experiences that happened uh, along this way. And so as we think about uh, kind of these last 10 minutes or so uh, before we close up, uh, can you, let's talk about the day of the dialogue and um, your experience with that um, a card you had received before that because um, you've gone through these pre-conferencing, right? You and the shooter um, had uh, you have two different facilitators that were present there and each one was doing pre-conferencing with you both prepping. What are the questions you want to ask? How are you going to respond if she asked this? So like you said, with a fine tooth comb, both of you are prepped for everything, all the detailed questions. Um, and, and you've, you've said before it was like an eight or nine hour session. So take us through that eight or nine hours in about, you know, that eight to 10 minutes that we have here. And then, uh, We'll we'll ask you a little bit more shorthanded questions after that. Okay, Mike. Certainly. So here we are, fast forwarding, and 2012, where we have the pilot, the pre conference process, and the 23rd, 2012. There we are um, at the Lyman Correctional Facility. I have my support people there. Raymond has his support person there. And my surviving son is also present. He's 23 years old. He went through the pre-conferencing as well, Calvin heard. And um, we're there and we walk into, uh, my request was uh, being it being victim initiated. That means that I'm, I'm the one that's going to initiate everything that takes place. So I wanted to walk into a room where he sat versus him walking into a room where I sat. So it's down to the detail. So when we walk into the room or heading into the room where he's sitting, Calvin is on my right and Lynn Lee is on my left, the facilitator. I froze at the door. <laughs> when I looked inside, I was scared to go in. It was a, I was stuck right at the front door of this, of this room. There he sat with one another, our facilitators, his, his support person. And uh, there were six of us all together at this table. Um, I had requested to have a table between us, not an open circle because of the feeling that was too up close and personal for me at the time. So we had a full table and I froze at the door. When I looked in, this gentleman, Raymond Johnson, now he was 32 years old. He stood up and dropped it. When he stood up, that was a respect that I felt he was given to me. When he dropped his head, that was a understanding of the pain that I caused this woman that she cannot walk through this door. So with those two things happening simultaneously, it gave me the strength I needed to move. So I was receiving of his respect and his honor toward me that he understood the pain. And that's what gave me the movement. As I sat down, 
um, it was my call to start out. I introduced myself and then we prayed. I prayed and then I he prayed in Aramaic. He's a practicing Islam and he prayed Aramaic prayer and uh, Abrahamic prayer, excuse me. And um, so at that point, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, I messed up. He grabbed his chest and he said, the only thing that I'm worried about this moment is having a heart attack. He began to cry uncontrollably. Um, in the midst of him crying uncontrollably, um, keep in mind that throughout these years that had been going, I had a, 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 a I was knitted to him to where I cared about his well-being. Um, I had empathy for this young man. And when he began to cry, my first instinct was to reach out and to hold his hand. But I had to stop myself um, from doing that and allow him to feel everything he needed to feel. Uh, we went through an eight-hour dialogue. We had two breaks. And when we did our first break, um, um, I when he came back, I told him, I said, do you remember? And we began to talk about. So there was three things that I wanted him to know. I wanted him to know all about Kaysan. I wanted him to know the harm that he caused me and the family and the community. And then I wanted him to know where forgiveness comes from, what it looks like and how that transpired. So those are the things that I wanted to tell him the most. And that's what I began to talk about. He began to share all about his life. And I had heard these things, what had happened. So a lot of what he had told me, I had already heard it. Um, I knew he was being totally um, transparent and authentic. Um, also, I asked him, do you remember the... The, the, the card you sent me in 2009. He'd sent me a Mother's Day card via church family. It got to me, um, the card got to my home and uh, through letters after letters, it ended up at my, at my home in my hand. It was a Mother's Day card with three character reference letters in it. In this Mother's Day card, Raymond asked me, would I help him? And he asked me, would I be a part of his family? Would I be his mother? At the time he wrote me that card, I was just in the process of requesting that restorative justice dialogue. Also, I submitted a letter to the governor for his clemency packet at the same time, right when he had sent me that card. So I was in the process of working toward more toward my healing on getting having that dialogue that didn't transpire till, till then, till 2012. And um, he said, yes, I remember that. And I said, I cannot... I could not answer you then at the time. I was not ready. But right now, my answer to you, me being your mother, I will say yes to that. I will be your mother. I will be a part of your family. And my surviving son, he sat there and told him that I'm not here for forgiveness, but I'm here to see if you're authentic. And now that I see that you are, I accept you as my brother. So that was my miracle to hear my son say these things. And we accepted Raymond 10 years ago, May 23rd, that just passed. We accepted him in our family, my son, Calvin's brother, and we took him under our wing and we supported him the whole time. And like I said, that was when the legislation started nationally.
I began to advocate for Raymond Johnson for his release. He was sentenced to life without parole, uh, never to see the light of day. Um, that work that I was initiated in DC, um, I was there for him and the co-defendant uh, to make an impact on those laws. And due to those laws passing, it affected the laws nationally for juvenile lifers. And testifying at their hearing locally, Raymond Johnson has been released, <laughs> hallelujah, for seven months. Um, he is actively my son. He um, comes and takes my trash out. He comes and eats dinner. And him and Calvin come over and we have dinner. We take pictures and all that kind of cool stuff. We just had our 10-year anniversary uh, for the dialogue that we had. And I tell you, it was refreshing and was reviving and um, work accomplished. Um, I testified at the hearing locally for his re resentencing, as well as Paul Littlejohn, the other co-defendant. And he will be out this year, the co-defendant. Um, I had a dialogue with him September 30th, 2016. And uh, that was a four-hour dialogue. So, yes, yeah, so four hours and eight hours uh, with Raymond Johnson. Yeah, I mean, I got, I got the Holy Spirit moving up in here. I'm having a hard time sitting still over here in Charlotte. Woo! Oh, glory. Yes, yes. <laughs> to God be the glory for the things he has done. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> and and just to kind of wrap this up, I, I was fortunate enough to be at that 10th anniversary dinner that you had with uh, Calvin and Raymond sharing all three of yours experience about uh, that day 10, 10 years ago. And not only that, but the night was emceed by another um, formerly incarcerated man who was released because of the work that you did on behalf of yes. Raymond. So, and it's not just, it wasn't just Jason. There's so many other people that in Colorado that are, are starting to get released, you know, one or two over the, a year over the last few years. And there's more to come through that what's called the JCAP process yeah. and going through the folks who, the, the juveniles who were sentenced to life without parole um, as, as kids under, under the, many of them under the age of 17 um, yeah. who are now coming out. And, you know, I know Raymond has often asked you like, are they thanking you? Because this is all like, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he really wants them to be. They should be coming, taking out your trash too, right? Like they should that's be, right. They should all be around. That's, um, that's the way so, Raymond feels. He's like, where are they? They need to be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, um, and and I just really want to make sure that that people understand the scope of the work that you have done, not just yeah. in your in your story, but right your national work, um, your your state work but also the impact you have on these, I think it's almost a dozen now, you might have a number on that, that have been released uh, who were sentenced, you know, in that 90s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s time. Um, and and you're also, you know, there's some other folks, other mothers who have taken them uh, under their wing as well, Peggy and some others. Um, and that, and it's all a testament to not only the, the power that you have, but this restorative justice process that you have really kind of given yourself to. So thank you for the example that you have given us. Thank you for the work you have done. Thank you for the impact you've had on raw tools. I, I, it's hard for me to make a decision in raw tools without thinking, well, like it's the WWSS. What would, what would Charletta say? What would Charletta say? And I mean, we even had a call this morning about something else going on and it was all about what would Charletta say? What, what, what do I need to add? I need to 
see Charlotta's lens through here to help us make these decisions. So thank you so much for um, everything that you've done uh, for yourself, for your community, for your, your other, mm-hmm. for Calvin and, uh, and for sharing your story here with us tonight. And I, I think Shane has some, some questions that came in here too through well, the chat. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we almost got to just sit with that. You know, it was so powerful, Miss Charletta. And uh, on some of these faith forums, we've had six or eight different panelists sharing things, you know, and, but tonight I, I, I had the feeling, I, I still got the chill bumps on my arm. I was like, <laughs> I think, I think we don't need too much. We just need to hear, <laughs> we need to hear uh, your heart and, and, Oh, I'm so grateful. Um, one of the questions that came up, which I think is is a really good one, is this is so powerful to hear. Is this exceptional? Like, is this just happening, you know, in Colorado or in your work? Are there other folks doing this in other places in the country? And how might people know about it so they can support it? Yes, um, most definitely. Um, I mean, my experience is phenomenal, um, supernatural, um, <laughs> all of those great things. And Mike mentioned earlier that forgiveness is not one of the uh, requirements for restorative justice, um, but it always seems to s- come into the ingredients of it. And mm-hmm. I believe that's because it's such it's such God's work. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 restorative justice the the repairing, the, um, you know, the, the, the fact that you're confronting your pain and there's someone that is remorseful about it and the willingness to repair the harm, it's the Lord's work. And I think, you know, it's, it's a national work. There's a national restorative justice council. Um, Colorado has a, our local, uh, our, go, you know, our, our state restorative justice council. Uh, we have, um, uh, the work that I do is um, our restorative justice enthusiasts, or that's where I do my trainings. Um, mm. And you know, Pikes Peak Restorative Justice Council. So yeah, we it's it's broad. Right. Um, yeah, we put have, any links we have in, been, the, in the chat there, Mike and Charlotte. Yeah. We'll put them in there, and we'll put them on Facebook and in the in the notes from this too. Go ahead, Michelle. Yes. Yeah. 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 So there. Yeah. There. There. There is. It's a national work. Um, we matter of fact, they're going to be in St. Louis um, this year, and so they do a national restorative justice conference every two years. Mm. And so last year we were here. I believe it was 2019. I was one of the keynote speakers at the National Restorative Justice Council in 19. So now they're like I said, they'll be they'll be in um, in St. Louis. I won't be attending this year, but uh, definitely you can look that up. That's um, great. Yeah. And so it's 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 uh, and then, um, you know, Howard Zier um, is our is our, you know, our, our, you know, the guy. So, (laughs) you know, so that's definitely you you start right there and it'll just branch off on the um, the work for restorative justice in our in our country. Mm -hmm. That's great. It's a great start. And we we cite some of that work in our our book, too. And, you know, a few folks were asking what book we were talking about that Charlotta's stories in here. In fact, it's on Red Letter Christian's website today, just the like brief excerpt. But y'all y'all got to hear it tonight and make sure you share this link as it goes out so other people can be inspired by Miss Charletta's story. Um, Mike, I wanted to see, you know, the, the Howard, Zare, and other folks, they, they define restorative justice as um, 
you know, uh, that the criminal justice system is asking what did they do wrong and what punishment did they deserve? And restorative justice is asking a different set of questions is what harm was done and, and how do we heal those wounds? Right. And absolutely. T- tell us more, Mike, a few other resources that you have, because you've done a whole lot to try to resource people with different things. It's a little hard to see. I hold it close. Yeah. Yeah. Let me uh, un- unblur my, my video here. We got it there. Yeah. Just hold it up a little bit. There you go. Yeah. So this is, this is a really good introduction, a little book of restorative uh, teaching tools. There's a lot of kind of this little book series that talked a lot about yes. different aspects and mm-hmm. um, it's written by a lot of different people. Um, Howard Zare is one of them who has written it out of uh, Eastern Mennonite university. Um, and there's also a deep indigenous um, history that really informs so much of this. It really comes out of a lot of the dialogue circles and, and talking pieces um, that people use in whether it's a, a, a high risk uh, or high impact like Charlotta was a part of or part of like a, a school system uh, where mm-hmm. it's slowly moving into public school systems as a way to just have healthy dialogue, whether or not there's conflict there. And then once you have that healthy dialogue, if conflict happens, then you have this model to help work through that, except you have the the topic of, of repairing harm that's a part of it instead of, uh, you know, like a, a themed dialogue circle. So there's a lot of different places. Uh, Howard Zare is a, a great person. Um, then uh, Charlotte already mentioned the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice. Um, they're meeting in three weeks. I don't think it's too late to yeah. register if you really want to um, in Chicago. I uh, just checked their More website. There. Chicago. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was in St. Louis. Thank um, you for that correction. Sure. Yeah. And so that links in the chat. You can look at that. Um, If you Google restorative justice or transformative justice uh, in your area, you might find some organizations that are are starting out or already working in that. So um, that's a great way to go. Transformative justice is essentially the same thing as restorative justice, but it's not connected to the the justice system or the legal system, that it's a similar Mm -hmm. process, but kind of doing it in a community led space. Cool. And, and on, on your website, on the Raw Tools website, we've got a few other resources too, right? That uh, different ways people can create conversations around this and follow up. Anything else that, because uh, you, you said that the easy work is the actual uh, doing the blacksmith and the deeper heart work is what we heard from Charlotta tonight. And uh, are there any other ways that say someone has like uh an experience that they really want some, they, they don't know how to resolve this conflict. Are there any other concrete tools you think that people, we can point people to? Yeah. I I'm always a fan of starting local, right? See yeah. what's in your area first. And then if you really can't find anything, reach out to us. I'm sure we'd be happy to, to help maybe find something. Um, a lot of the emails on rawtools.org go to myself. Um, you can also connect with Charletta at Colorado crime survivors, network.org. Um, so we'd be happy to help with that. Um, there are, uh, like you said on our website, if just how to have healthy dialogue around the idea of gun violence, there's a resource, it's a free download. Um, you can get a link to that on our website, how to, um, develop a plan to respond to gun violence in your community so that you have that. It's kind of like having that dialogue circle. You have these practices in place, um, your faith, even uh, Charlotta mentioned this, that she had three years of her faith conditioning her towards forgiveness that we can start practicing restorative principles outside of a high risk or high impact space so that if we are put in that position, we have kind of this preemptive training or this preemptive, uh, you know, our, our second nature 
becomes a little different when we make this a regular practice. So um, it's, it's, it's great to have that, that concrete resource that can kind of be the, the steps to resolving a problem, but we also got to kind of build that into our everyday practices as well. That's a good word. Miss Charlotte, you got any closing words for us? And I was going to ask you if you feel so moved, you could pray us out of here, but I want to <laughs> okay. give, give us any closing wisdom you got. Yeah. Okay. Now I would say another referral um, is Beverly title and she has the five R's and that, that, that goes into the repair relationship, restoration, all of those things. You can pull her name up as well. She's uh, passed away, God rest her soul, but she put together a book, The Five R's. And so that Beverly title would be um, her name. So she's another resource um, that, yes, I would like to say that. So uh, parting words of wisdom. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I would just, um, I would just say that uh, Mike touched on it. The lifestyle Restorative justice is a lifestyle. And so it is so grace-based. Hmm. And if we can see the grace that Christ has brought into, that's what restorative justice is. I look at, I look at the, uh, the, the uh, criminal justice system as the Old Testament and restorative justice as the New Testament. And so it is so laced with grace and, and that, it has become a lifestyle in everything that I do. Mm, that mm. restorative justice philosophy. And that's how we solve the, the issues in our families, uh, with the community, it, 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 marriages. I'm not married, so I can't really speak on that, but <laughs> yeah. So you that are married, you can say restorative justice works in this, but I don't I know nothing about that. So <laughs> um, but, but uh uh, so, yeah, that's what I would say, that it's a lifestyle. And and once you begin, it's kind of like you're experiencing this born again experience when you actually plug into the RJ philosophy. It is a beautiful experience. And when you embark upon it, uh, rather it's training, you can have all the training in the world, but until you actually experience it and watch that 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 outcome, you know, it's it's really it's really a wonderful work, and so um, that's what I will be end with. That the restorative justice is a lifestyle, mm. and uh, mm. and I will uh, I will take us out in a word of prayer. Um, well, we'll, we'll receive and, it, Hallelujah! Alrighty, and I would say that um, that God strengthen each and every one of us as we're learning the tools of grace and restorative justice in our lives and abroad, and that we become a voice and instrumental in this work to restore and repair lives in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Thank y'all so much. Thanks everybody for joining us. We'll see you soon. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you 
for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement. 